beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I am Dave Mitchell. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Glad to have you along this evening. Boy, we've got some breaking news for you tonight. We're going to get right to it. But first of all, you can talk to us tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show simply by joining us on the social media, on Twitter, at OHBBCoHost, and by simply sending us an email to dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. But as always, it's going to be an action-packed 60 minutes of talk for you tonight around the world of sports. Ohio State is going to try to tie the school record of 22 wins in a row at Illinois this week. The Cavaliers are a lot worse than expected. The Browns play their most meaningful game since the year 2007. We've also got the good, the bad, and the ugly, plus the dilemma going on in Miami again on tonight's show. But first... Breaking news tonight out of the world of auto racing. Three-time Indianapolis 500 winner Dario Franchitti said on Thursday that doctors have told him that he can no longer race because of injuries sustained in an IndyCar crash two months ago. Franchitti broke his spine and right ankle and suffered a concussion in the crash at Houston. The crash occurred on the last lap when his car made contact with another car and went sailing into the fence. The 40-year-old Franchini underwent two surgeries on his ankle and recently returned home to Scotland to recover. The four-time IndyCar champion has been the face of the series since he returned in 2009 following a brief stint in NASCAR. And, of course, he's also got an 11-year marriage to actress Ashley Judd, which ended in January, but then it may have been resurrected by this accident. Dario Franchini, 40 years old, retiring from the IndyCar racing scene. Let's move on to Major League Baseball, where the American League most valuable player is a familiar name, Miguel Cabrera. He's won it for the second consecutive year for the Detroit Tigers. Just like in 2012, Cabrera prevailed in the ongoing debate over defining the award and Los Angeles outfielder Mike Trout. Cabrera received 23 of the 30 first-place ballots in voting by the Baseball Writers Association of America. Cabrera becomes the first back-to-back -back winner in the American League since Frank Thomas did it for the White Sox in 1993 and 1994. The most recent consecutive winner in either league was St. Louis's Albert Pujols in 2008-2009. Cabrera was actually better offensively this season than a year ago. His batting average, on-base percentage, and slugging percentage were all higher, and he led the American League in all three categories for the second consecutive season, despite being hampered by back, hip, and groin problems much of the second half of the season. He still matched his 2012 home run total of 44, but finished second to Baltimore's Chris Davis, who had 53. Cabrera's 137 RBIs were too short of his total last year and one behind Davis's league-leading 138 this year. The National League Most Valuable Player, congratulations to the Pittsburgh Pirates center fielder Andrew McCutcheon. McCutcheon was the best player on a team destined for the playoffs for the first time in 20 years. His MVP candidacy almost built itself. Members of the BBWA voted for him first. Benji Molina was second. Paul Goldschmidt was third. McCutcheon was tw is 27 years old, made his third consecutive all-star team in his fifth season in the majors. 
He played in 157 games. He hit 317 this year with a 404 on-base percentage, a 508 slugging percentage. McCutcheon hit 21 homers, stole 27 bases, and earned his second consecutive Silver Slugger Award. Miguel Cabrera, your American League Most Valuable Player, and Andrew McCutcheon of Pittsburgh, your National League Most Valuable Player. Now that the Most Valuable Player Awards have been handed out, of course, earlier this week, Detroit Tigers right-hander Max Scherzer was named the AL Cy Young Award winner. He received 28 of 30 first-place votes to finish ahead of second-place Yu Darvish out of Texas and third-place Hisashi Awakama. Scherzer, 29, went 21-3 and this year with a 2.90 ERA in 32 starts. But his Cy Young case goes way beyond the win-loss record. He was in the top five in ERA, ERA plus, innings with 214 and a third, strikeouts as he registered 240, whip of 0.97, the walks-to-strikeout ratio of 4.28, and the war, 6.7. Scherzer was by far the best pitcher on the Tigers' division-winning team. Here's Max Scherzer on winning the Cy Young Award for the first time in his career. It's unbelievable. It just vindicates everything I've done, and uh, I can't say thank you enough to all my teammates for you know busting their butts every single day and fighting on defense and getting those extra runs for me because I think uh, that really helped my candidacy. Uh, I've been working so hard for all these years to keep getting better and better. Uh, every single year, try to do something better than the next. And uh, you know, for me, a lot of it's mechanical. Then I've been able to iron a lot of that out, and now it's about pitching efficiently and uh, pitch execution with all these pitches. And so uh, because that I think I took a big step forward in 2013. Scherzer is the second Tigers hurler to win the Cy Young Award in the last three years, joining Justin Verlander. Of course, Denny McLean in 1968 and 69. 69 was that 31 victory total for McLean. And Willie Hernandez, of course, he was the closer that was virtually perfect in 1984, the Tigers World Series championship year. They've won Cy Youngs while with Detroit. Now, in the National League, the Dodgers' Clayton Kershaw has two Cy Young Awards by the age of 25 and one runner-up finish, which was last year. He just posted baseball's lowest ERA in 13 years and became the third pitcher since 1900 to lead the majors in that category for three consecutive seasons. He's won the Cy Young Award in two of the last three seasons, and he explains the thrill of winning the award and staying consistent on the baseball field. It really is special, you know. I think, uh, you know, you don't really try and think about individual stats or awards during a season, but to, uh, you know, get to come home and get to celebrate this with friends and family and just more than anything, we kind of realize what uh, the other people that have walked before me and gotten to Cy Young is, uh, is a pretty special place for me to be. So, uh, you know, I'm definitely honored and humbled by it and uh, just try and enjoy it tonight, have fun with it. I feel like anybody can have one great season or one great half of a season, and for me, uh, I think the mark of a truly good player or good pitcher is to be able to do it year in, year out. So for me, that's my goal is to, you know, be that model of consistency, know, know, give my teammates a chance to know that, you know, every year I'm going to try to give up 200 innings or something like that and just know that they can count on that. And I think that's a big thing as a teammate uh, to be able to do, and that's kind of uh, what I pride myself on. Yeah, but you want a bigger award for Kershaw? $300 million because that is the rumor that the Los Angeles Dodgers might be offering to keep him from becoming a free agent. 
Clint Hurdle of the Pittsburgh Pirates won the National League Manager of the Year Award Tuesday after guiding the Pirates to a 94-68 and record this year, capturing the National League wildcard spot and ending a record 20 straight losing seasons, the longest drought in any of the four major professional sports. Quite an accomplishment for Clint Hurdle and the Pirates. And two championships and eight successful seasons in Boston brought Terry Francona exactly zero first-place votes in manager of the year balloting. It took him one year with the surprising Cleveland Indians to bag the prize. In a close vote by the Baseball Writers Association of America, Francona edged old friend John Farrell of the World Series champion Boston Red Sox for the American League honor. It was the first Manager of the Year award for Francona, even though he steered the Red Sox to World Series titles in 2004 and 2007. During his initial season with the Indians, he directed them to a 24-win improvement and their first playoff berth in six years. Francona said after winning the award, he feels the Indians' transition to a winner this year happened the day he was hired one year ago. I sat there at the press conference with Chris, and, you know, everybody just about says the same thing in those press conferences. You know, they work for the best organization, and they're the best fans in the world. And, and, and I remember what I said was that I was excited because when the press conference was over, Chris and I were going to get to work, and that was going to be the fun part of it. And that kind of lived itself out. I mean, a year later, I love doing what I'm doing with whom I'm doing it with. And I get a big kick out of that. I mean, we just had organizational meetings in Cleveland, and, I mean, I felt like, I don't know, it just feels good. You know, it doesn't mean we don't have challenges, but when we do, we tackle them together. And I think Chris fosters a, 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 a an environment where everybody can do their job, and I think we kind of have a philosophy that, you know, we take – what we're doing really seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously, and we all have fun together. I had gone on record as saying I thought John Farrell would win the award, simply because it's Boston and the East Coast media bias, but Francona did it. I'm going to give him congratulations, and I was wrong on that, but Francona said he called Farrell the morning the award was going to be announced. Of course, Farrell was a longtime colleague in Cleveland and was his pitching coach in Boston. And Farrell thought it was funny because they were up against each other as finalists for this award. I mean, I called John this morning and just said I thought it was kind of funny that me and him were finalists for an award that, you know, if you would have told me back in 1988 when we were playing in Cleveland that we'd be up for this award, both of us would have laughed each other out of the room. But, you know, I, I didn't view it as, you know, against Bob or against John. You know, when, when an organization does good things, you know, these these types of things happen. And and what it does, it gives me the platform, you know, to brag about it a little bit. And, and, that's, and I'm pleased about that. The Bob that Francona was talking about was Bob Melvin of the Oakland A's who finished third in the balloting. Francona becomes the first Indians manager since Eric Wedge in 2007 to win the award. Surprisingly, Mike Hargrove never won the award. And as far as Clint Hurdle is concerned, he becomes the first Pittsburgh Pirates manager since 1992 to win the award. And who is that? Jim Leland. The general manager's meetings 
concluded yesterday in Orlando, Florida, with only one signing. That was infielder Nick Punto and the Oakland A's agreeing to a one-year deal with a vesting option. Though that's not quite an eye-catching move, there's no doubt plenty of groundwork was laid by many teams as the hot stove season continues this winter. Wednesday's highlight was agent Scott Boris going off the deep end and holding court with reporters and discussing a variety of topics, including three of his top clients, which are Boston outfielder Jacoby Ellsbury, Cincinnati outfielder Shinsu Chu, and Boston shortstop Stephen Drew. Those three don't appear close to signing, which is the modus operandi that Boris usually has. Instead of going through the process like everyone else, Boris likes to hold people out until the very last possible second for them to sign. Fox Sports Baseball Insiders John Paul Morosi and Ken Rosenthal talk about the the goings-on at the baseball winter meetings. Jay-Z was the star at day two of the general manager's meetings. No, not that Jay-Z, the newly minted baseball agent and entertainment mogul, but Jack Zarenzik, general manager of the Seattle Mariners. Ken, we've heard a lot before about Shinsu Chu being on their wish list, but today, Ken, sources told both of us, Nelson Cruz and certainly the other, the other option in the outfield, Carlos Beltran, being added to their wish list among free agents. Ken, they know after four straight losing seasons, the Seattle Mariners need to add some outfield sock. They're going to try to do that early in this offseason. JP, the Tigers, another team in the news. Dave Dombrowski, their GM, told you today that he wants Drew Smiley in that team's rotation next season. That can only mean one thing. Max Scherzer or Rick Porcello has to go. You've been hearing that all offseason. Sounds like it really has a chance of happening. And Scherzer is a guy that will appeal to teams because of his one year of control as opposed to David Price, who has two years of control. It will cost less to get Scherzer in prospects. One other thing with the Tigers, they're looking not just at Joe Nathan for the closer's role, but also Brian Wilson. One team, Ken, that should be very active early on, the Los Angeles Dodgers. We can all do the math. They have four major league outfielders. They have Jock Peterson coming. But so far, Ned Coletti, the GM there, Ken, only told me general conversations with other clubs. But we still hear from other teams, other, other executives, that Matt Kemp and Andre Ather very much available on the trade market. Finally, on replay, Joe Torre spoke today on that subject and on home plate collisions. He said a vote by the owners on replay is possible as soon as Thursday. Torrey said that baseball knows what it wants to do. It just doesn't know how it wants to do it exactly just yet. One question, the triggering mechanism for replay, how that will work. Now, on home plate collisions, Torrey said the issue is gaining legs for him. There seems to be an industry-wide concern about the catchers and the base runners and the injuries. So, Torrey now plans to meet with Mike Matheny and Bruce Bochy, two managers and former catchers, at the winter meetings. Well, Baseball is going to begin March 31st of next year. Keep that in mind. Also, the baseball winter meetings, not the general manager meetings, but the normal winter meetings will be taking place the first week of December. So a lot of trades could go on. There should be a lot of movement this year. We'll keep an eye out for it on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Let's move over to college football on tonight's show where the BCS rankings are out. And I got 33% of what I wanted last last week. Last Thursday night, Baylor played Oklahoma. I was hoping for an Oklahoma win. I predicted Baylor. Baylor blew them out. I was going for Stanford to beat Oregon. They did it. Oregon now is out of the BCS chase. 
And then on Saturday, it was Alabama playing LSU. And I wanted so bad for LSU to win that ball game. But because it was in Alabama, the Crimson Tide won. So here's the way the BCS rankings are out for this week. Alabama is still number one. Florida State is number two. They did everything they could do to keep Ohio State number three, out of number three, I should say, but it didn't happen. Ohio State is number three. Stanford moved up to number four, and Baylor is at number five. Now, this weekend for the Ohio State Buckeyes, they are going for 22 wins in a row. Now, the last time that happened, the only time it's ever happened, actually, for Ohio State, was back in the years 1967 through 1969. That is when the Buckeyes won 22 in a row, and that streak was stopped by the Michigan Wolverines. That was the first time ever Bo Schembechler went up against Woody Hayes. Now, the Buckeyes will go to tie that record this weekend in Illinois. And I just want to give you one other thing to think about this weekend. On Saturday night at 7 o'clock on the Big Ten Network is going to be a very interesting show. It's called Tiebreaker. Now, a lot of you probably don't remember what happened, but this was a great scenario for a TV show. I'm surprised it took a lo- this long for the Big Ten Network to do it. But what happened back in 1973 was Ohio State and Michigan came into the rival game that Saturday afternoon And again, as it always happened back then, the winner would go to the Rose Bowl, the loser would stay home. Because keep in mind, back in those days, only one team from the conferences got to go to bowl games. And this was really the game that catapulted conferences changing that rule. Why? Because Ohio State and Michigan tied 10-10. I remember Mike Lantry missed two field goals in the last two minutes of that ball game that would have given Michigan the victory. But it ended up a 10-10 tie. So both teams finished unbeaten with one tie. And on Sunday, the athletic directors had to vote in the Big Ten as to which team would represent the Big Ten in the Rose Bowl that year to play USC. Everybody thought it would be Michigan going because the year before, Ohio State had gone to the Rose Bowl and were beaten by Dick Vermeil and UCLA. So everybody thought, okay, now it's Michigan's turn to go to the Rose Bowl. Uh Uh-uh. The athletic directors voted to send Ohio State, which totally sent Bo Schembechler into outer orbit. And just listening to him on some of the previews for this show, you got to watch it. That's uh, Saturday night, 7 o'clock on the Big Ten Network. It's called Tiebreaker. Now, what else is going on this weekend? Of course, Ohio State, as I said, They're going for the 22 in a row. But that doesn't even give them the state of Ohio University win record. Do you know who holds that? The University of Toledo won 35 straight games. And their quarterback back then was Chuck Early. Believe that or not. Remember that name. 1969 through 1971 was that win streak for the University of Toledo. The all-time record, Oklahoma, 47 in a row. That happened from 1953 through 1957 when Bud Wilkinson was the head coach of the Sooners back then. And that Toledo streak, fifth best all-time in college football history. But right now, the Buckeyes have more fish 
to fry. Urban Meyer has the Buckeyes right where he has had them all season long in the coaches' poll. He thinks they belong at number two. But at least one player thinks the coach is selling the Buckeyes short. Now, you've heard all week long about what has been going on with Evan Spencer and what he told reporters Monday and what he thinks would happen if Ohio State played Alabama or Florida State. But listen to the majority of this interview in context, and you'll understand where he was coming from. Does that happen when you're watching a game? You think, like, you know, if envision Ohio State on the field of Alabama and, like, what you guys might do different in the situation? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's ever since I've gotten in, really since, like, midway through high school, like, I've, every time I watch somebody else play, I, I always think about, oh, what I could have done that or what we would have done that as an offense or what we would have done that as a defense or what have you. So, I mean, it was, I mean, it's, it's, good, it's good to look at other competition and kind of mentally play a game um, while you're sitting on the couch. Some of you did watch the Alabama game, the Oklahoma game, and the Stanford game. How do you think you guys would do against Oregon against Alabama against Alabama? Well, I guess I'm a little biased, but I think we'd uh, <laughs> we'd wipe the field of both of them. But that's just my bias speaking. <laughs> that's Alabama. Who? Who's the other one? Whoever. Whoever. Okay. Whoever. I mean, do you, and how much do you guys really follow this? And how much are you really rooting for Stanford? Well, I mean, we—I was—I was the biggest Cardinal fan for three hours. But I mean, because we need a little bit of help at the same time, we still got to take care of our business. And we got to go out there and, and uh, show them why we're one of the best offenses in the country. Show them why we're one of the best defenses in the country, and why we have the best kicking game in the country. So we know that we got to go out there and take care of the business that we have to handle. But also, we know that we need just a little bit of help as well. Evan, honestly, I think the entire state of Ohio were Cardinal fans last Thursday night, and they got their way. Now, if somebody could beat Alabama and uh, Florida State, we're going to go over the top 25 schedule here in just a moment. Now, what Spencer said is what he said. I mean, that that's just the end of the story. So it was no great surprise when Urban Meyer said he wasn't happy with the whiteout. Meyer, per the Columbus Dispatch, said he was very disappointed with Spencer, and it will prove to be the last chance reporters have to talk to Spencer for quite a while. Later, Spencer went to Twitter and apologized for his bravado. ESPN's Danny Cannell, their college football analyst, weighs in on what he thought about what Evan Spencer said. I don't think Ohio State gets enough credit. I mean, I just discounted their wins and saying that. But they're, what they're accomplishing is spectacular. What Urban Meyer has done there, going a season and a half, running the table, is extremely impressive. And I, and I don't have any problem with him believing that they can go toe-to-toe with Alabama or Florida State. But when you look at the body of work, when you look at this season alone, the things they've accomplished, they don't stack up to the things that Florida State and Alabama have. Now, you asked how they would face up. They could go out there and they could have a competitive game. And they've got a dynamic quarterback. They've got playmakers. But ultimately, I think it's clear that Florida State and Alabama are the top two teams and they're on the outside looking in. They need help. Well, I'm not sure that it's clear that Florida State and Alabama are the top two teams. I would tend to agree with Alabama. You've got to give them the respect that they deserve, winning two of the last three national championships and going for their third in four years. And what they did to LSU last Saturday night was very impressive. I am very, very high on A.J. McCarron as a quarterback. I think he's the best quarterback coming out of the college ranks right now. Forget Manziel, forget Teddy Bridgewater. I think it's A.J. McCarron. All the guy does is win. That's what he does, and he doesn't turn the football over. Now, as far as Florida State is concerned, what I noticed about Florida State over the past few weeks is 
They are a very fast football team. They can move from sideline to sideline quicker than anybody else in college football. But where they have a problem with is that they are not very big in the front seven defensively. You can run at them. That's what Miami did. The problem was that Miami couldn't stop them. Now, what has to happen? If Ohio State would face Florida State, I think Ohio State's going to be able to run the ball. I think Carlos Hyde will have a big day. I think Braxton Miller will have a big day. Because Ohio State, what they like to do is they like to run directly at you. They're not big around the end. They run directly at that defensive line. And that is Florida State's weakness. Now, Urban Meyer feels the same way. He has been voting his team number two all year long. Now, the Buckeyes are already ranked ahead of both Oregon and FSU. That's where Meyer had them. So the top two, in his opinion, hasn't changed heading into this Saturday's game at Illinois. Illinois has lost 19 consecutive Big Ten games. So if Alabama and Florida State win out as expected, that's what everybody thinks is going to happen. Relegating even an undefeated Ohio State team to the Rose Bowl, Myers reprimanded his apology will be the last anyone thinks of his comments, more or less. But that also means, of course, that an undefeated Ohio State team would be playing in the Rose Bowl instead of the BCS championship game. And if the Buckeyes weren't already dreaming of their shot at the crystal football, it's clear that Spencer wouldn't have been driven to comment on their potential opponents in the first place. And that's what the Buckeyes are doing right now. They're thinking national championship. What's going on in college football this weekend? Well, tonight, number eight Clemson will be entertaining Georgia Tech. That's at 7.30 this evening. Should be kicking off in just a few minutes on ESPN. And then tomorrow night at 9 o'clock on Fox, it's UCLA. They will be hosting Washington. That's a big Pac-12 ballgame. Now, here's what's happening Saturday. Number one, Alabama is at Mississippi State. If Alabama's going to trip up before the SEC championship game on the 7th of December, this would be it at Mississippi State. Number two, Florida State will be entertaining Syracuse. There's no way Florida State's losing this ballgame. Number four, Baylor will be entertaining Texas Tech. That's at Arlington, Texas at Cowboy Stadium. And Charles Davis of Fox Sports previews this football game that will be televised on Fox. Texas Tech taking on Baylor, a Big 12 battle. Baylor, we know, undefeated, tracking towards not just winning the Big 12, but a chance to win a national championship. Bryce Petty, the quarterback, is a Heisman Trophy candidate. Lake Steve Strunk, their running back, a preseason candidate, has had a nice year. Glasgow Martin, another running back. But last week, Shock Linwood came into the game, 182 yards running the football in their big win against Oklahoma. Yes, they throw it like crazy, too. Look for Antoine Goodley to catch a lot of passes. Unfortunately, Tevin Reese, one of their top receivers, dislocated wrist, will miss the rest of the season. That's too bad for Baylor. But if anyone can afford to take a shot at, or a ding at one position, it's probably Baylor at wide receiver. They'll have other people emerge and play well. An underrated offensive line. Sarah Richardson is an All-American and one of the best ones in the country at guard. They take care of Bryce Petty and the running game as well. Flip it over. Defensively, again, I hate to use this word, but it's true. They're so underrated on defense. They run to the football. They tackle. They break up passes. They make it hard for you to run the ball. They make it tough for you to score. The reason they're undefeated this year, not just an overwhelming offense, but a terrific defense. Ahmad Dixon, their safety, is probably their headliner. Sam Hall, who plays nickelback, another terrific player for them. 
Bryce Hager in the middle. His father, Britt, used to play at Texas and in the NFL. Bryce plays just like him and maybe a little bit better. Texas Tech, also a 7-0 start, has lost their last three, looking to stop that slide. Can they figure out who's going to play quarterback? Is it Davis Webb? Is it Baker Mayfield? Whoever it is, make sure you find their All-American candidate at tight end, Jace Amaro. And defensively, Tech's got to get back to their early season swarm to the football and tackle people. This should be a fun one. Both of them can put up points on offense. Who will take care of it defensively in our game? I've got a confession to make here. For the last two weeks, I have been thinking to myself that Baylor is the best team in college football. I think they can do it all. They've got a great offense, a fantastic defense, and an outstanding coach in Art Bryles who just signed a 10-year extension with the university. Is Baylor the best team in college football? Well, that question was posed to the Fox Sports College football crew to discuss that, led off by Clay Travis, then Coy Wire, and then ending with Petros I think that Oklahoma State will beat Baylor, actually. I don't think Baylor's going to go undefeated. I think Oklahoma State will get them in Stillwater. But I do think Oklahoma State will go on the road and lose at Texas, which means that the big game will come down to December 7th on the road, Texas-Baylor. Baylor gets it done. One loss, not perfect, but wins the Big 12, goes to the BCS. That's my call. You got it? I, I got it, but I, I don't know if anybody can beat this Baylor team in Big 12 play. One thing that I learned Thursday night is that the Bears are for real. Not only we've talked ad nauseum about their offense, but their defense. Phil Bennett has this defense playing lights out. Their linebackers, Eddie Lackey and Bryce Hager, they play like pit bulls on Red Bull. And Ahmad Dixon, he's a safety that will come up and hit you like our guy Dayon Buchanan from Washington State that we love to watch. They're flying all over the football field. The other thing about this team, they have depth. Lake Seastrump goes down. Shock Linwood comes in, rushes for 23 attempts in 180-some-odd yards. Tevin Reese goes down. Levi Norwood comes in and averages 19 yards a catch. That was shocking to me as well. This Baylor team is balanced, has depth. They're for real. Well, they put together a great game in the game that they had to win to continue to be relevant nationally and be around in the BCS conversation for Baylor in November. That is huge. And I was really impressed with Phil Bennett's defense. There's no joke about those guys. They were very physical, and they matched the physicality of what is the most physical team in the Big 12, and that is Oklahoma. So going forward, you have to say they are the favorite to win the conference. Very interesting what you say about Stillwater. I think that's something that can happen to Baylor, too. But they look like a BCS team. They're playing like a BCS team. But the pressure of November does close down on teams, and they do have tough games. I love Baylor. They do have tough games coming up, but I still love Baylor. If they go unbeaten, i got to be honest, I think they deserve a chance to play for the national championship. Also on Saturday in the top 25, it's Stanford at Southern Cal. Utah will be at number six, Oregon. It is number 25, Georgia, against number seven, Auburn. Then South Carolina, number 11 in the country, entertains Florida. Number 23, Texas, will be at number 12, Oklahoma State. Number 14, Michigan State, will be at Nebraska. That's 3.30 on ABC Saturday afternoon. The Spartans are coming off a bye week, so Coach Mark D'Antonio feels they are rested and ready to go against the Huskers. We've had a chance to regroup, as we've talked about a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, I think our players have uh, been refreshed. We've got an opportunity to look ahead. We've allowed sort of the, uh, the dust to settle, I guess, a little bit in terms of where the conference is at and, and really where we go from here. And we've talked among our players about how the next three games are, are so important, I think, in, 
in the outcome of this football season. So, got a great challenge uh, in Lincoln waiting for us. Uh, Nebraska has a very good football team. Uh, when you look at them offensively, when you look at them offensively, uh, obviously uh, Taylor Martinez is maybe doubtful to play, but um, I think Tommy Armstrong and Kellogg have done a, uh, an outstanding job. Tommy Armstrong is going to be a tremendous player for them. He's a redshirt freshman. Um, he's making all the throws, making runs, making things work, operating and, and functioning and um, distinguishing himself in, in crunch time as well as Kellogg at the end of the Northwestern game. He's uh, got a big play receiver in Bell, um, outstanding running back in uh, Abdullah. Uh, offensive line have been injured a little bit, but, um, you know, find a way. They find a way. Currently, Michigan State is on a collision course for a December 7th matchup with Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game in Indianapolis. But Michigan State right now has to concentrate on Nebraska. The Huskers are in a down year, but they can still come up with a big victory over Michigan State and throw the entire Big Ten into a tizzy. That's at 3.30 on Saturday afternoon on ABC. Elsewhere in the top 25, just a few more games. UCF will be at Temple. Number 17, Wisconsin, will be at Indiana. It is Houston going to number 19, Louisville. Oregon State is in Arizona State. Iowa State will be at Oklahoma. And rounding out the top 25, Miami goes to Duke on Saturday afternoon. That brings us to our The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly segment for tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Let's start out with The Good where IOC President Thomas Bach opposes any lessening of Lance Armstrong's lifetime doping ban, saying yesterday that any appeals for leniency by the disgraced American writer are too little, too late. After urging the World Anti-Doping Agency to introduce tougher punishments for drug cheats, Bach told the Associated Press in an interview that Armstrong has not made a real admission and his ban should not be reviewed. Armstrong had suggested he might cooperate with a cycling commission investigating doping in return for a reduction from his lifetime ban from all organized sports. Speculation has increased after WADA said Tuesday an independent cycling investigation was imminent. That's good. I don't think that Lance Armstrong should be allowed in cycling ever again. Here's the bad for this week. Todd Christensen Never fit the Raiders' renegade mold, but that didn't keep him from becoming one of the team's best all-time tight ends. A five-time Pro Bowl selection and two-time Super Bowl winner, Christensen died from complications during liver transplant surgery Wednesday. He was only 57. Christensen died at Intermountain Medical Center near his home in Alpine, Utah. He had been waiting 10 months for a donor liver. After a stellar career at running back for BYU from 1974 through 1977, Christensen was a second-round pick for, surprisingly enough, the Dallas Cowboys in the 1978 NFL Draft. He was waived by the Cowboys after breaking his foot in training camp and landed the next year with the Raiders, where he played 10 seasons at tight end and won the Super Bowl with the team in 1981 and 1984. After his retirement, Christensen went into broadcasting, but he also tried to break into baseball by trying out with the Oakland A's when he was 33. 
He even gave acting a shot, playing a game show host in an episode of TV's Married with Children. He also was a broadcaster for the initial American Gladiator show. Christensen was also a color commentator for the NFL on NBC from 1990 through 1994 and also worked at ESPN and with the Mountain West Sports Network. And I always thought he was a great color man on the NFL and also college football and ESPN. He was a devout Mormon who didn't drink and his family believes his liver problems started 25 years ago after a botched gallbladder operation, his son told the AP. That's our bad for this evening. And the ugly, former Denver Broncos offensive guard John Moffitt blasted the NFL in a FoxSports.com podcast. According to Moffitt, he told the Peter Schrager podcast crew, it's all dirty business and the worst part about it is all business is dirty business. Let's be honest. Let's look at corporate America and what they try to instill in people. Like it's such a big deal that I leave the NFL. That's how brainwashed people are with money and false sense of security. But not only is the NFL dirty corporate American business, but now you're risking people's health. Moffitt retired from the NFL last week. He joined the podcast on Tuesday and on the current state of the NFL, the concussion lawsuit, and his decision to step away from the game in his prime. Moffitt recounts that when he suffered a knee injury in 2011, he needed to hire a lawyer for assistance. He also noted that after his announcement of his retirement, he was tirelessly contacted by the NFL Players Association. He said the motive was unclear, but he did say the Players Union wasn't supportive of his decision. He said it was pretty interesting. The union called him a few times, and some of the stuff that they did, just to be blunt, I really think they did a terrible job with my situation. He said that he couldn't speak to them overall, but he would just say that he probably got called four or five times by them from three different people. So our good tonight, Lance Armstrong's band continues, the bad, Todd Christensen passing away, and the ugly, John Moffat criticizing the NFL and the dirty underbelly of the NFL and corporate America. College basketball season began on Tuesday night in earnest with a couple of great ball games. Of course, it was Kansas beating Duke, and then it was Michigan State beating previously number one Kentucky. So what's going to happen in the ACC this year? Of course, the Atlantic Coast Conference has gotten some new teams into it from the Big East, and Doug Gottlieb wants to take a look at what's going to happen in the ACC this year, the newly revamped. ACC. He thinks Duke is the favorite, but what teams could challenge them? I believe it's a four-horse race in the new-look ACC for supremacy. Let's start with my preseason number one team in the ACC. It would be the Duke Blue Devils. Remember, Rasheed Suleiman comes back for his sophomore year. Added to the mix is a redshirt sophomore in Rodney Hood, who is named co-captain, a impactful athlete transfer from Mississippi State. And then they add freshman sensation Jabari Parker. Wow. Duke is really, really athletic, skilled, long, and able to switch screens defensively on the perimeter. We haven't seen this type of Duke team in a long time, maybe ever in terms of top-to-bottom athletes. But I think the key is Quinn Cook. The point guard has to play at an elite level. Last year in the non-conference part of the slate, when they won in the Bahamas, he looked like one of the top point guards in the country. 
he came back to earth and really struggled in the NCAA tournament. Tyler Thornton's in a solid backup, but it comes down to whether or not Quinn Cook can break down the defense and can defend the point guard position all while looking for his points if Duke wants to get back to an elite level, if Duke wants to get to Dallas. Then I'd put North Carolina. James Michael McAdoo back for another year. Marcus Page, a point guard back. We'll see when P.J. Hairston comes back, but he's a, a lights-out shooter, a big-time scorer from the perimeter. And even though they'll miss Reggie Bullock, who required a lot of shots, but also made up for it at the defensive end, I think the addition of Isaiah Hicks makes North Carolina probably number two or three in the pecking order in the start of the season. We'll see how it irons out. That's because I got my eye on Syracuse. C.J. Fair's back. So, too, is Jeremy Grant, who now takes a starting role and a stud role, as does the new freshman point guard, Tyler Innes. Now, Innes is a Canadian, and this team has already played a couple games in Canada. Remember, they also added Michael Benajay, who's a transfer from Duke, gives them some depth, probably off the bench. And maybe the biggest key to Syracuse is, what do they get out of their interior? What do they get out of Dewan Coleman? Does he rebound? Can he score? And can they give... Can it give them somebody who they can throw the ball to inside? And then my fourth best team, or the team maybe to keep an eye on in the new-look ACC, is Notre Dame. Remember, Eric Atkins is back, so is Jerry and Grant. And they add Demetrius Jackson, who's a stud from Mishawaka, which is, frankly, right next door, sister city, to South Bend. Uh, Joe Harris is an elite player at Virginia. James Robinson's a good leader at Pittsburgh. And I'm wondering if Jeff Bezdelic, who's just 10-39 and 39 during his career at Wake Forest in the ACC, He's the coach on the hottest of hot seats in the ACC. But to start the season, it's Duke, Carolina, Syracuse. Carolina and Syracuse kind of 2-3 real close to each other. And then Notre Dame is a team that I think could win the ACC. Hey, I love this time of year. I love college basketball a lot more than I love the NBA. Let's take a look at the top 25 and what's happening this weekend in college basketball. And let's look at the games tonight. It will be number six Arizona at San Diego State. Freshman Aaron Gordon has played two games and recorded two double doubles for the Wildcats. Elsewhere tonight in college basketball, number 15 Memphis will be playing Austin P. Josh Pastner's Tigers open their regular season at the FedEx Forum against Austin P. Also tonight, it's Connecticut playing Boston University. The Huskies handled Yale easily on Monday despite getting almost nothing from their rotation of bigs. And the final game tonight, it is number 23, Wichita State, 2-0, playing William & Mary. The Shockers unveiled their 2013 Final Four banner late Monday and then beat Western Kentucky by 17 points. Here's a look at the games on Friday, and that means number one, Michigan State, is in action. They're taking on Columbia. The Spartans' win over Kentucky on Tuesday represented Tom Izzo's third win over a top-ranked team in the past eight seasons. Also on Friday night, number two, Louisville will take on Cornell. Shane Bahannon returned from what amounted to a one-game suspension and played 14 minutes in Tuesday's blowout of Hofstra. Elsewhere Friday night, it is number five, Duke playing Florida Atlantic. Jabari Parker's 27 points on Tuesday weren't enough to lift the Blue Devils past Kansas, as I told you about earlier. Number seven, Oklahoma State will be playing Arkansas Pine Bluff. Also, on Friday evening. Well, actually looking at the schedule, that's it. Let's take a look at what's going on on Saturday around the top 25. On Saturday, it will be number 8, Ohio State, playing at Marquette. The Buckeyes cruise past Ohio on Tuesday, despite LaQuinton Ross missing seven of the ten shots that he took. Also on Saturday, it is number 11, Syracuse, playing Colgate.
Winthrop will be at number 12, Virginia Commonwealth. It's number 13, Wisconsin at Wisconsin Green Bay. Also on Saturday, number 14, Florida will entertain Arkansas Little Rock. On Saturday also, it is number 23, Wichita State playing Tennessee State. St. Joseph's will host Creighton. That rounds out the Saturday schedule. And on Sunday, around the top 25, number 4, Kentucky will play Robert Morris. It will be Iowa State entertaining Michigan. Big game there. Also on Sunday, number 10, North Carolina will host Belmont. Elsewhere on Sunday, just a couple of more games. It is number 17, Notre Dame entertaining Indiana State. And it will be number 18, Virginia playing at Davidson. Let's move into the NBA. Last night, also in Minnesota, the Cavaliers were hammered by the Timberwolves in easily the Cavaliers' worst outing of the season, 124-95. to The defense for the Cavaliers has been horrible, especially last night. They gave up 108 points in three quarters. Coach Mike Brown spoke after the ball game about his team's performance. Uh, they beat us in transition. They beat us in the half court. Uh, they cut harder. They played harder. Uh, they were more physical. Uh, give them credit for winning the game. Well, obviously, after a performance like that, yeah, I mean, you know, you're concerned. Uh, it's a good team on their floor. You get concerned about a performance like that. Uh, but, you know, I, again, I thought we fought. We didn't finish the game in Chicago, but I thought we fought. We had our chances down the stretch uh, with it being a one-point game with, I don't know, five, six minutes to go. So, uh, you know, so we're nine games in, and we're going to keep keep on keeping going, keep on going forward. We keep playing D. We keep trying to move the ball offensively until we figure this thing out. I was a proponent of Mike Brown being brought back to the Cavaliers, but I have to say that I am having second thoughts about him coming back. Just simply because there is no offensive philosophy under Coach Brown. This is like when LeBron was here. Everybody complained that when LeBron was here, he would just dribble out the clock and then throw up a shot. And that's the same thing that's going on now under Mike Brown with Kyrie Irving. Deion Waiters will dribble around, take a shot. Kyrie Irving dribbles around and then drives to the bucket. There's just no offensive philosophy. There's no fast-break offense. I've heard Austin Carr say several times on the broadcast for the Cavaliers, the television broadcast, that this team needs to get out and run if you're going to play a defensive philosophy like this. Number one pick, Andrew Bennett, has been a total flop. So far, according to Austin Carr, he's just thinking too much. I'm not sure the guy understands the game of basketball. He's only played college basketball one year and is coming off shoulder surgery. Now, certainly I'd like to look at him and say, hey, Kevin Love was pretty much the same way when Minnesota took him out of UCLA several years ago, and he's become an all-star. But right now, Andrew Bennett is not showing anything that made him deserving of the number one pick in the draft. I would have taken Victor Oladipo. I think he would have fit in better with this Cavaliers team. The number 19 pick that the Cavaliers took was Sergei Karasev. Well, Karasev is a 19-year-old left-handed shooter that appears to know how to play basketball, but because he's terrible defensively, according to Coach Brown, he's not getting any playing time. But he does exactly what this team needs, and that's shoot the basketball. Alonzo Gee is a joke at small forward. There's nobody in the league that Alonzo Gee could not start under in the NBA. Andrew Bynum, I think, has been a pleasant surprise, but he's not playing many minutes. And now he's out another game with a family medical emergency. Deion Waiters, 
is up and down. You never know from one night to the next what you're going to get out of Waiters. Tristan Thompson has been an outstanding player for this team. If you look at this team right now, I think Tristan Thompson is the most valuable player on the Cavaliers. What that totals up to is that this team needs to improve and improve quickly. That's it for basketball, and what a weekend of football we've got in the NFL. Starting tonight, where the Indianapolis Colts will be at Tennessee taking on the Titans. However, before we get into the schedule and what's going on, Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross was planning on meeting with Jonathan Martin yesterday to discuss the circumstances surrounding his leaving the team. However, in swoop, the NFL and the league requested that Ross postpone his meeting with Martin until after the offensive lineman meets with Ted Wells, the NFL's independent investigator, on Friday. Wells and Martin are expected to discuss the alleged bullying and harassment by Dolphins lineman Richie Incognito and other teammates that drove Martin to leave the Dolphins on October 28th and seek help for emotional distress. Martin has yet to speak publicly, but his lawyer leveled charges of abuse and violence against Dolphin teammates last week. Out of deference to the process, we will cooperate with their request, Dolphins Chief Executive Officer Tom Garfinkel said in a statement. John Clayton reacts to the news the Dolphins agreed to delay their meeting with Jonathan Martin at the NFL's request. Yeah, you can understand it. Ted Wells is doing the investigation, wanted to at least get Jonathan Martin first as opposed to being second with the owner of the team, Stephen Ross, scheduled on Wednesday to meet with Martin out in Los Angeles. And you can understand that. I mean, he doesn't necessarily think that Stephen Ross is going to try to change what Martin's going to say and try to cover up for the team, but Ted wants the full ability to be able to do this openly, honestly, and all that, and Stephen Ross had no trouble doing that. So it didn't, in some ways, make a lot of sense for Ross to talk first when Wells has really the most important job right now to understand where the culture of that locker room is. So a simple change and one where Stephen Ross now will meet at some point after the Wells meeting. The Wells meeting will be in New York on Friday. Last night, Stephen Ross spoke glowingly of Joe Philbin, but I think you can see how this season is going to play out is going to determine how their future is and how the investigation plays out, you know, where the responsibility goes to. But remember, Stephen Ross put over $143 million of contracts out on unrestricted free agency. This was the biggest spending team, and if they're going to finish 6-10 and 10 or 7-9, and 9, which is possible, major changes are going to come along with the fact that the investigation could point fingers that could be bad for Philbin and also for the general manager. I just think this is a story that is never going to die. Incognito spoke to Fox about his part in this whole dilemma on Sunday. He spoke with Jay Glazer. He admitted making racial slurs and threats toward Martin via voicemail and text messages, but also, to add context to the slurs that were made public, Incognito said that Martin spoke to him using the same vulgar language, and Jay Glazer admitted that he saw those texts, over 1,100 of them, and that it was a normal aspect of their friendship. Now, Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, is setting up a task force to improve his locker room. This is just another case of the NFL setting up a task force. This is like Roger Goodell, like I said last week, the commissioner of the NFL, hiring Ted Wells, a attorney, to do an investigation. If you want to get to the bottom of this, you hire an investigator. You don't hire an attorney to cover your butt. 
Now what Ross is doing is he's firing a, uh, hiring a task force which includes Tony Dungy, Don Shula, Dan Marino, Jason Taylor, and Curtis Martin. What are these guys going to do? Come back with recommendations that will never be implemented? This is a story that eventually is going to go away, but the NFL will never do anything about it because if they do do something about it, they're going to be could be held liable in a court of law for whatever happens. So let's take a look at what's going on in the NFL this week. First of all, tonight, we've got a ball game coming up. That is Indianapolis at Tennessee. This has big ramifications on what could happen in that AFC Southern Division. This is going to be on the NFL Network tonight in Tennessee at 825. It's coming up about, oh, about 40 or 50 minutes from now. And Brian Billick is going to preview this game for us. Well, it didn't necessarily look like it was going to be an interesting game, but with, on the Thursday night game, we've got Indianapolis visiting Tennessee. And what transpired over the weekend made it very interesting. For Tennessee, they had that dreaded first loss to a team that had not had a win all year long in the Jacksonville Jaguars. And more importantly, they lost their quarterback, Jake Locker. Jake Locker continuing to show that he's having a tough time getting through a full NFL season. Tennessee's playing pretty good defense, and I don't know how to make out the loss of Indianapolis at home to the St. Louis Rams. You've heard me talk many times about the formula for winning in this league. You've got to win at home. You've got to beat the teams you're supposed to beat. Clearly, the St. Louis Rams should be a team when Indianapolis was at home, a team they should have beaten. I don't know if it says as much about St. Louis as it does about Indianapolis. I think they will rebound Andrew Luck. Not one of his better games. The key is, can they go on the road against a pretty good Tennessee defense, play good, solid defense against a team now with quarterback issues, and rebound and stay atop the division? Well, Indianapolis better win this ballgame, and I think they will. I'm taking Indy to beat Tennessee tonight in the Titans' home field. Now, also, on Sunday, the Browns, 4-5 and five on the season, have a shot to move up in the AFC North Division and deeper into the playoff picture with a win over first place Cincinnati, they are 6-4, and four, a team Cleveland beat earlier this season. Joe Hayden, who is playing at a Pro Bowl level in his fourth season, says the Browns understand the importance of this week's game and are embracing the opportunity. And Browns coach Rob Chudzinski believes his young team, which has had its shares of ups and downs, is ready for the spotlight. This is going to be, a, a, again, a great challenge for us a great opportunity for us and i expect our guys to respond our focus has been good through the bye week uh, and we'll need to be at our best as a team uh, you know our guys i think uh, have had a taste of some success uh, i think they believe in themselves uh, we know we have a lot of areas we have to improve on and are continuing to work on those areas and i just really like our guys focus right now well the focus better be very good coming up on sunday the Browns haven't played in a significant game like this this late in the season since 2007 when a Week 15 loss at Cincinnati cost Cleveland a playoff spot. And the offensive coordinator of the Browns on that team, Rod Chudzinski. Still, the running game for the Browns this season has been almost non-existent. They traded Trent Richardson to Indianapolis. They brought in Willis McGahee. They've got no running game, and Chudzinski knows that has to improve quickly. It's something that we've taken a hard look at during the bye week. Uh, we want to have balance. Uh, we want and recognize that we need to improve uh, the running game. Obviously, whatever it takes to win, uh, and we've, you know, we've played some good teams that are loading up on us in the run game, uh, but we feel like we've uh, 
identified some things and, and are going to take the steps and have taken the steps uh, to try to improve that part of, uh, of our offense. Well, the Bengals were sitting pretty two weeks ago, but they've lost two games in a row that they should have won. Questions abound if they are truly a good team. Kickoff of this game, Cleveland at Cincinnati, is at 1 o'clock Sunday on CBS. Here's a look at some of the other games on Sunday afternoon, the 1 o'clock games. The New York Jets will be at Buffalo, that game on CBS. Atlanta is at Tampa Bay, and Detroit will be at Pittsburgh. Chiefs wide receiver Dwayne Bowe was arrested on Tuesday morning for speeding and possession of marijuana, police told the Kansas City news station. According to Fox4KC.com, Bowe was arrested in Riverside, Missouri for speeding and possession, according to Riverside Police. They confirmed Bowe's arrest to CBSSports.com. While questioning the driver, the police said they detected a strong order of marijuana from the inside of the vehicle. A police dog alerted cops to a black backpack, and inside of that was found a container that had 4.2 grams of what was believed to be marijuana. Later they found out that it was. Bo was pulled over for doing 48 in a 35-mile-an-hour zone shortly before midnight and was taken to jail. Now, the Chiefs aren't commenting any further on this, and they aren't even sure if Bo is going to play in the game on Sunday afternoon against the Denver Broncos. CBS Sports' Jason LaConfora explains. The Chiefs aren't saying much about the situation at all at this point. It's one of the first off-field issues Andy Reid's had to face there in his new uh, tenure as Chiefs head coach. I suspect Bo plays this weekend in a huge game against the Denver Broncos with first place in the AFC West and first place in the AFC overall at stake. But by no means am I certain of that. The Chiefs are still mulling their options. They're talking to Bo. They're seeing what they're going to do. The reality for Dwayne Bo is he's just been a highly priced decoy to this point this season. He doesn't show up downfield like he used to. That vertical element is not really a part of the Chiefs' attack. He's a guy who runs some of those routes, tries to stretch the defense, tries to draw some attention from the safeties off of the short and intermediate stuff. But the reality is he's not really showing up in their offense. He's not making big plays. And he and Alex Smith, their quarterback, have yet to really connect. This game between the Broncos and Chiefs is for first place in the AFC West and has plenty of playoff implications with it. Peyton Manning will play, but he's doing so on a badly injured ankle that required an MRI earlier this week. What happens in this game will ultimately, or could ultimately, I should say, be undone in a couple of weeks when they meet again in Kansas City. But for this week, Brian Billick previews this matchup. We've been waiting for this matchup for a long, long time. And over the last couple of weeks, I think the sizing up this game has changed a little bit. Certainly, the Denver Broncos and Peyton Manning are the singular offense that maybe could go in and challenge that really good defense of the Kansas City Chiefs. But the question now is how healthy is Peyton Manning and the protection that he gets against maybe the best front four in football by way of the Kansas City Chiefs. Does he got to get the ball out inordinately quick? Is he going to be able to hold up and stand up to the beating against this Kansas City defense? If they do, then the big question goes to the Kansas City side of the equation. Can Alex Smith keep up with Peyton Manning? You know they're good and balanced, play good defense, run the ball. Uh, Alex Smith has managed the game pretty well. But if indeed he's got to keep up in a track meet and Denver's able to score some points, can Alex Smith take that Kansas City offense to that next level?
Well, I think he can. I don't think he will on Sunday. This game is in Denver on Sunday night. Take the Broncos to beat the Chiefs and hand the Chiefs their first loss of the season. Here's the rest of the games on Sunday. It will be Washington at Philadelphia. Arizona is at Jacksonville. Oakland at Houston. Baltimore will be in Chicago to take on the Bears. On the afternoon games, it will be San Diego at Miami. Green Bay is in New York to take on the Giants. Minnesota at Seattle. San Francisco at New Orleans. And the Monday night game, New England at Carolina. Now, that may be a very interesting game on ESPN. And one other note out of the NFL earlier today, Ed Reed has signed on with the New York Jets, rejoining Rex Ryan. Ryan, of course, was the defensive coordinator with the Baltimore Ravens. He rejoins Ryan. That's going to do it for tonight's show. So glad you joined us here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Just one reminder, in two weeks will be Thanksgiving. We will not have a show on Thanksgiving. Contrary to popular belief, yes, I have lost weight, but I am not passing up on turkey and ham on Thanksgiving Day. So I'm going to watch football, enjoy family. We will not be on in two weeks on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But we will be back next week at 7 o'clock here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Of course, that music tells us that we're ready to go. Thanks for joining us tonight. My thanks to you for listening. My thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer. And we hope you join us again next Thursday night at 7 o'clock for the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good weekend, everybody. Talk to you again next Thursday night. Until then, good night. Good night.